I've heard the idea of Jesus being a revolutionary in the past, and I always ask, like, where was his army and what was his plan? Because it seemed like a very poor planning for a military figure to get himself crucified. So how, what do you see within the Gospels, the historical record of him preparing a, a battle against either the Romans or the, the authorities of, of the temple area? All right, well, let's, let's look at Jerusalem at this time, okay? The temple was, a, was an enormous platform. I forget for sure how many acres it was, but it was like maybe four or five acres in size, the temple platform, okay? And on this platform was located a uh, big temple, okay, where you would walk up and perform various sacrifices. It also located in the temple... At the very top was the house of God, I'm going to call it, or house of Yahweh, where Yahweh was supposed to reside, okay? But he wasn't there, apparently. Uh, and also on this uh, platform, I'm going to call it this park. It was really a park. Uh, there was also a synagogue that had been built there by freed Jewish slaves, <laughs> which is an interesting story. Uh, and let me tell you that story. When Herod, when the Romans appointed Herod the Great, and he's called Herod the Great Builder, when they appointed him as king of Judea, uh, Judea didn't want him. He had to, he took an army with him to capture Jerusalem and to become the king there. And in this battle, uh, the Jewish soldiers that were defeated, they were sold as slaves, which is the common thing. That's what they did back then. And they sold them uh, in a market in Rome. And the thing was about these Jewish slaves, they made lousy slaves. <laughs> they wouldn't work one day a week, no matter how much you beat them. And they were very picky about the food they ate. <laughs> and they quickly acquired a uh, reputation of being lousy slaves, if you could imagine that. Well, uh, Jewish merchants in Rome uh, couldn't stand the fact that there were Jewish people that were enslaved in Rome. And so they started buying up these slaves at discounted prices because their owners were, thought they were terrible as far as being a slave. They, didn't get, they did not get into the program. <laughs> and anyhow, the Jewish merchants in Rome bought back hundreds of these slaves. And when the slaves got back to Jerusalem, they decided and got permission to build a synagogue on the temple grounds, okay, this four or five-acre grounds. And uh, that's where that synagogue came from. But anyhow, next, when Herod the Great built this, right next to it is a fort. He built a fort, Fort Antolia, named after Mark Anthony, which we all know from history. Now, Mark Anthony and Herod the Great were best buddies. Okay, they were best friends. And they built this fort there because sometimes 
the people in the temple around Jerusalem there would revolt against Roman authority, and so this temple was supposed to suppress any revolt. This temple held a cohort of soldiers, and that was like four companies. A Roman company consisted of 80 men. And so at full strength, there would be four 80-man companies stationed there with associated officers. Each Roman company had uh, was run by what we call a first sergeant. They didn't have any officers. The officers were really at the cohort level. There were maybe five or six officers associated with the cohort there. The rest of the Roman soldiers would be stationed in Caesarea on the coast. This is a port city, and this is where Pontius Pilate would stay all the time, and he would have maybe a 1,000 soldiers. Uh, But that was the military situation. There were more soldiers further north, like in Syria or Turkey, and Egypt that could be called upon if needed. And, uh, but the goal for a long time was for when John the Baptist was running things was to clear out the Romans. Now, really, all the Romans that had to be cleared out would have been in Jerusalem, actually, because once you got them cleared out, the theory was Yahweh would come back down to earth and empower all the Jews to finish kicking out the Romans. That was the mythology. And according to Josephus, the historian that wrote about the Jewish war that occurred uh, decades later, this organization, which I'm calling Kingdom of God Movement, had two military armies. He said they hated each other. The commanders hated each other. Now, this is just supposition. I'm assuming these two military organizations or bands, they weren't real armies. I don't know how many people they would have had, maybe 500 people each or something like that, existed. I'm assuming they existed in the time of Jesus when when the kingdom of God movement was starting up. And uh, that's just referral here. It's... You know, we're making suppositions here, assumptions, stuff. But that's based on the writings of Josephus. And uh, so the idea was to move on to the temple, clean it out, and then Yahweh would come back down and put things right for the Jewish world. Now, to do this, you had a problem of the soldiers in the fort, Fort Anatolia. You had to neutralize them either bottle them up where they couldn't get out or kill them, one or the other. We don't know which. And they may not have been Roman. Uh, When Herod the Great was alive, uh, they were manned by Jewish soldiers who were loyal to the Roman Empire. Okay? We don't know who were Romans, soldiers there, or Jewish soldiers. We don't know. But either one, they would have been loyal to the Roman Empire. And and anyone trying to take over the temple, the temple, that fort overlooked the temple and had ramps leading down to the temple. You had to neutralize that military force. 
You couldn't go in there and just turn over a bunch of money-changing tables to everything. These soldiers would have poured out and put you out of business right then. So you had to have a force strong enough to neutralize the Anatolia fort. And so how many that took and what they did with it, uh, we don't know. We know there was some violence there because they talk about Jewish uh, about Jesus turning over the money changers, take their tables. Now, the reason there were money changers there was not change Persian money to Roman money or Roman money to, you know, some other kind. They were there because the money in circulation, mainly Roman money, had a figure stamped on Caesar's face was stamped on these coins. Well, it was against religion, Jewish religion to have any engraved figures in the temple area. So they had to change their money to Jewish money, Jewish coins, which were only legal in the temple, by the way. You couldn't purchase anything outside the temple. But if you wanted to go up there and buy some food or want to buy a lamb that sacrificed to Yahweh or something, you had to do it with Jewish money. And so before you went in, you would exchange all your Roman coins for Jewish coins. And then when you came out, you do the reverse. That's what the money changers were there for, to facilitate that. And the Sadducees definitely made money off this process. They were in this system. The temple was very much like the Bank of America, U.S. Steel, and everything. All enterprises rolled into one were run by the Sadducees as a money-making business. And not only that, Jewish merchants all over the world would send back 10% of their earnings to the temple. Uh, the temple was so rich that the roof over the temple, the roof over Yahweh's house, was solid gold with golden spikes on there, little golden spikes. And that was done so that pigeons wouldn't ship on Yahweh's roof. <laughs> they wouldn't land because of the spikes there. Uh, and it, years later, in uh, 69 CE, when the Jewish war was going on and they were attacking, the Romans were attacking the temple. The temple caught fire and the gold on the roof melted and ran down the sides of the temple. And it was so magnificent, such an unusual sight, the Roman army stopped fighting to watch this happen. And uh, Vespasian, the Roman emperor, uh, used this gold from the Jewish uh, temple to build the Colosseum that we know in Rome. That's where the money came from to finance it, from the roof of Yahweh's house. <laughs> A little aside there. Uh, but anyhow, the plan, uh, plan of the, after John the Baptist was killed, apparently Jesus moved on into Jerusalem to take over the temple. And actually, the plan itself worked as far as, the, you know, the only missing part was Yahweh didn't come back down to empower the Jews. <laughs> he was missing. 
missing in combat. Literally, he didn't show up, and he was supposed to, because apparently Jesus was able to hold the temple for several days, and which would have meant he had to neutralize the forces in Anatolia. And when uh, Pontius Pilate came from Caesarea with the, his Roman soldiers, he suppressed the revolt. And under Roman law, this is Roman law, you could only crucify two types of people. The Romans considered crucifixion to be the worst kind of punishment. Okay? If you were a slave and you killed your master, you were crucified. Okay? If you led a revolt against Roman authority, you were crucified. Okay? Now, an armed revolt against Roman authority, theoretically, they could crucify everyone in the army that was revolting. They didn't do that. They only picked the leaders to crucify. The rest, they sold as slavery and kept the money. Okay? Pontius Pilate uh, only crucified three people because of this. And... Uh, there were more than three people involved in this revolt, probably a thousand or so, maybe more. Uh, he sold them as slaves and kept the money. Uh, when Jesus was crucified on there, he was being crucified as a criminal revolting against the authority of Rome. And there were two other people that were crucified with him. They were made, today, they're made out to be of robbers or thieves, Rome didn't crucify those people. Robbers, they if they did anything to them, they'd give them ten lashes and kick them out. They didn't bother with uh, robbers or thieves. Murderers, yes. Murderers, they would arrest and send to some coliseum to be eaten by lions or something. Uh, but uh, thieves, they didn't bother with. And it's been hypothesized that uh, the two other people that were crucified with them were the leaders of the two army military units that Josephus talks about in his histories, okay? Because if you were a leader of an armed force, you were definitely going to be crucified if you were captured, okay? All right, your turn. <laughs> okay, so... Um... In the past, I've I've said that um, the reason that made the message of Jesus unique, and this is I guess coming from a traditional perspective, was because it's it's portrayed as there was a message of peace, a message of um, reconciliation, and another series that people came and and doctored the the Gospels or the the New Testament to make it more pro-Roman. But there was plenty of revolutionaries in the in the Jewish uh, nation at that time that fought and died. There was plenty of revolutionaries in the Roman Empire that fought and died. Um, why? I know you mentioned the idea of him uh, surviving the crucifixion as being very attractive and and powerful for the mystery cults. But what made uh, this specific revolutionary so impactful to also his followers? Because um, you have the issue, okay, Jesus survives, so then what happens to him? Does he just 
fade into oblivion and why are his followers so willing to die for for his cause and i guess if it's the kingdom movement instead of the jesus movement they're fighting for the kingdom of god but um the way it's portrayed in in christian history in the new testament is that they all get martyred and that martyrdom itself is a form of uh bringing the message out so were they martyr in the process of overthrowing the the Roman Empire? What what do you gather from his followers after his attempted crucifixion? Well, you have to remember the martyrs. Uh, there are no were no martyrs in Jewish in the Jesus's Kingdom of God movement. Okay, the Kingdom of God movement. There were no Christians. Christianity didn't exist. Jesus had never heard the word Christian, okay? He was a Jewish rabbi, okay? And they didn't have any martyrs back then. The martyrs came about later. And, uh, well, after Christianity was established as a religion, okay, uh, the martyrs were Christian martyrs. They weren't Jewish at all. Okay. Judea did, rejected this uh, mystery religion in total uh, for very fundamental reasons. They didn't believe in cannibalism, for one thing. Uh, also, they didn't believe this idea that you could be punished for someone else's sin. They, that was completely against Judaic law. Uh, so martyrs came about from Christianity itself. Okay? And... Uh, there were various uh, episodes throughout the first 300 years of, of various martyrism. It, did, it wasn't continue, continuous by any means. But the Romans, even though they were very inclusive in their religious belief, they found that revolts very often happened because new organizations occurred such as religions or fire departments we have one case uh, very well documented about a Roman governor in Turkey the city I can't remember the city wanted to establish a volunteer fire department and the Roman governor thought this was a great idea good idea but the Roman emperor at the time and before him had forbidden any new organizations to take to be formed, new religions or fire departments or any organization, because these had turned out to be centers of revolt. Okay? And so the governor wrote to the emperor for permission. You know, I said, I want to, I think this is a good idea. And, but the emperor said, no, we can't do this. No, we don't know what kind of revolutionary things are going to occur from this. And he forbid it, forbade it. And that same attitude was against new religions, of which Christianity was one of them. Okay? Even though they weren't revolutionary as far as trying to overthrow the Roman Empire at this time uh, at all. In fact, and they had included this idea of morality in their religion, which 
the Pharisees had started, and since Jesus was a Pharisee and preached morality, uh, the Mithraic churches that converted to uh, Jesus as being their savior, they included morality too, which distinguished them from other mystery religions at the time, all other religions in the Roman Empire. In fact, there were Greeks, Greek scholars. We have in writing, they were questioning Christians. They said, is, is, is Christianity a religion or a philosophy? Because only philosophy up to that time included morality. No religion included morality. Well, it was a little confusing to the Greeks as to what Christianity was. Is this a religion or is this just a philosophy? What is this? And uh, so that was something very unique with Christianity. Now, later, persecutions. Around uh, when, around, I'm going to say 300 BCE or before Constantine, Diocletius, Constantine's boss was emperor of the Roman Empire. His second in command, whose name I cannot remember, uh, his second in command was a, a force in the Mithratic religion. And he was very much against suppress, or very much in favor of suppressing Christianity because it was so similar to the Mithratic religion. And he instituted Lots of persecutions against Christians at this time, the worst ones. And uh, previously there had been other persecutions against Christians, but the worst one was uh, before, just before Constantine took power. And uh, he did it because the similarity between the two religions was so great. And uh, he wasn't able to do this. And uh, when Constantine became emperor, he favored Christianity. At that time, the Christians turned on the Mithratic churches and started uh, killing the fathers of these churches. Or what we know, they would chain them to the uh, wall in in the church and then bury the churches under earth and stone. And uh, they started wreaking revenge against the Mithraic church, greatly trying to suppress it. And that's one of the reasons, after the Council of Nicaea, the Christian church wanted to control centers of education because they taught these religious beliefs uh, like the Mithraic church did. And Essentially, you couldn't run a school unless you were a member of the church, a priest, okay? And if you didn't have a, a priest running it, they were you had to shut the school down. And they it took them hundreds of years to enforce this. Eventually, they succeeded in, in two purposes. One, they controlled education, and two, they got rid of all the pagan religions, Uh and three, they got the Dark Ages. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, if you ever wondered where the Dark Ages came from, it wasn't from those barbarians coming in from the north. It was from the Catholic or the Christian Church. I don't know. Uh, 
I guess you could call them Catholic. They were Eastern Orthodox. And so I usually learn, use the term Catholic religion after the Protestant Reformation. Then there was definitely Catholics and Protestants. But before that, there were Eastern Orthodox and Roman Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, for that matter. But what else can I tell you? <laughs> so when they became the, the official religion of the empire... When did, um, like, do you see the, the split between the Roman uh, pontiff or bishop and the Greek one? And the, uh, I know there's a bishop of Jerusalem and one of uh, Syria and one of Egypt. Did all those splits happen because the Mithraic religion was very complicated and, and difficult to figure out? Because the picture that we get in the West is that Christianity is a monolith. And that everybody believes the same thing. But in reality, if you study um, ancient sources, you realize that there was pockets of different Christian groups all throughout the Mediterranean, and they all believed different things. And even in the New Testament, you see that there was different schools, like the followers of Matthew, the followers of, um, of different um, perspectives regarding this, this figure of Jesus. So did they split up over, um, you know, were they splitting hairs or was it as intense as, as they, they like to claim that, you know, the nature of God has to be defined in a certain way. If not, everybody's a heretic and there's the heretic hunting aspect of, of the Christian religion. Well, before the Council of Nicaea, okay, before that, there were absolutely variations of Christian belief, okay? There was no official Christian belief. And uh, uh, there were different pockets of, of religion, really Christian religious belief. And the, uh, that was one of the purposes of the Council of Nicaea, to say, all right, if you're calling yourself a Christian, you have to believe this, okay, and not this. <laughs> and uh, that was the main purpose of the Council of Nicaea. And uh, they had the uh, force of Roman law or force of Constantine to back them up in this. Uh, one thing about the pontiff, uh, before Christianity, there were popes in Rome, of course. Like I said, Julius Caesar was pope. And the job of the pontiffs were to perform sacrifices correctly, absolutely correctly, in order to placate different gods. Well, sometime around uh, when the Vis Visigoths conquered Rome, I don't know, 450 CE, I'm not sure about the date there. Anyhow, just before that happened, the Bishop of Rome essentially declared himself as Pontiff, as Pontiff Maxima. He became the Pope of Rome, and uh, some of the after the Visigoth was it the Visigoths? I forget who it was that conquered Rome around that time. Uh, the people of Rome, many of the people of Rome, said the reason this happened is because the Pontiff didn't make proper sacrifices to all these gods. You know the 
the Catholic bishop took over the title pontiff, but he didn't make any sacrifices to any of these pagan gods, and that's why Rome was overrun. <laughs> but, uh, anyhow. So going back, um, you know, there, there's a group in, in Iraq that still venerates or follows John the Baptist. Is there groups in Persia that still follow Mithras as just the basic myth? Thraic religion. And Zoroasterism, too. So, so it's kind of like when people say, you know, how is it that we evolved from monkeys if monkeys are still there? Um, the original uh, cults or, or religions are still there, so do they feel like they've been distorted? Like, uh, I know you mentioned that you have met Zoroastrians in the past. Like, how, how, do, they, yes, how do they react to this uh, takeover of, of Christianity over the world and, and, in a sense, stealing their ideas or taking some of their concepts? Well, there's no no hostility that I'm aware of. And uh, they just still practice their religious beliefs. And, uh, of course, in, uh, in Iran, of course, you have to be very careful about practicing your religious beliefs. But... The Iranians have been pretty, pretty open to other religions. They haven't squashed, you know, killed them off. And, uh, so there is some amount of religious freedom in Iran. And, uh, you just can't proselytize. You can't try to get converts. So, uh, but I, uh, the people that I've met here in Houston that were, practicing Zoroasterism, they didn't mention anything about Christianity taking over some of their religious beliefs or anything. They just still practice their own stuff. This is something I often ask uh, scholars when we have them on the show. Where do you think the anti-Jewish uh, bias from the New Testament comes from? Does it come from a Greco-Roman um worldview that despises foreigners, especially the ones that are kind of sectarian and, and secluded and, and they won't participate in the, in the Roman religions? Or is it something specific about, um, you know, some, some people call it the, the, like, almost like a fatricide or matricide where the daughter religion tries to eradicate the, the foundation by speaking ill of it or trying to, um, no, I don't think so. No, no. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they wrote this, one of the purposes, one of the main purposes of writing their Gospels was to explain to the Roman world. Uh, you have to remember, the Jewish war had just finished, was just finishing when they wrote their Gospels, okay? They were trying to explain to the Romans, we're not Jews, Okay? Even though Jesus was a Jew, we ain't, okay? Don't associate us with these Jews in Jerusalem. We ain't Jews. That was one of the purposes of writing this. In fact, they hinted they didn't like the Jews, <laughs> okay? Uh, and they were doing it to kind of educate the Greeks and Romans that they weren't Jews. And uh, 
because of this, in the Middle Ages, this was uh, the basis for anti-Semitism, okay? The expression was, the Jews killed Jesus. Well, of course, Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans executed Jesus, and for a good reason. He revolted against them. And uh, But that's not how it was, uh, you know, put forward in the Middle Ages. And the anti-Semitism that was expressed uh, today or in Nazi Germany and everything has its origins in the original writings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then how they were interpreted in the Middle Ages. In fact, I view, I view uh, the Nazi anti-Semitism as a complete failure of Christianity, actually. I mean... Uh, the father of the Protestant religion um, uh, came from Germany, Martin Luther, you know. And the southern part of Germany was very Catholic, okay? In Bavaria, they're all Catholics. Uh, the Pope in Rome, Pope John, during the Nazi period, he was a collaborator with the Nazis, actually collaborated with them. And I well, tell us more about, about that because in this show we we like to uh, dispel myths. So I've never heard that. I've heard that he was in a in a camp camp himself. How was he a collaborator? Oh, the, the book, all this, all this, all this comes from a book called Hitler's Pope. Okay, and a uh, a Catholic scholar started researching this to disprove it is he said his original goal was to disprove this these collaboration stories about John uh, Pope John collaborating with the Nazis but he said and he got access to all these secret files in the Vatican and stuff that he did his research and he he wrote this book and he said it's overwhelming evidence of the collaboration between John and and the Nazis and uh, not John and Hitler I don't think they ever met but apparently uh, when Pope John was a uh, either an archbishop or cardinal in Bavaria it was in the 20s there was a lot of uh, problems with the uh, communists there taking over and killing people in Bavaria and Pope John became a very anti-communist individual and Hitler was seen as a stalwart against communism well the same thing is true in England the the, uh, House of Lords was very much in favor of Hitler and initially much to the chagrin of Churchill, and uh, but they favored uh, Hitler because he was so anti-communist, and the same thing was with uh, Pope John. But uh, but this this you, you say Pope John, but you're th- are you talking about Pope Pius the the twelfth? No, I think it was Pope John. Who who was Pope in the forties? Uh, Hitler's Pope. The the book Hitler's Pope is uh, the secret history of Pius the Twelfth by John Cornwell. Oh, okay. Well, I may have the wrong. I thought it was Pope John. 
But I'm, I could be wrong on that. I think that was a pope after, and then I thought you were talking about Pope John Paul, who was um, who was at a camp during the Nazi era. Uh, but we're talking about the pope who was in power at the time of the Nazis. Right, that's the one. That's the one. And uh, very interesting book. I mean, he's uh, the author is a real scholar. There, it's uh, he, uh, a lot of interesting stuff there. But this anti, and that's why I consider the rise of the Nazis as really a failure of Christianity, fundamental Christianity. Not to get too personal, um, did you come out of the Christian community? Because um, there's a show I interviewed the the host uh, from the uh, Thinking Atheist, and he just had uh, Bart Erdman as his guest, and. They were talking about how they were both Christians, and then one became a historian, and the other one became an atheist activist. And it and it's like um, their life calling to either uh, pinpoint issues with Christianity or to flat out um, refute Christianity. Uh, what what is your uh, purpose in sharing this information? And do you have a personal uh, conviction or uh, transformation that came from from learning this? No transformation. Uh, I come from a Protestant background. My family was. But I was always interested in history and facts, okay, as opposed to uh, myths and stuff. And I always questioned things growing up as a kid, much to the chagrin of my parents and some teachers. <laughs> but... Uh, I was more interested in what really happened or what, and like, uh, I remember asking my mother, uh, what is Father, Son, Holy Ghost? Where did that come from? Because I knew it wasn't Judaic, but she didn't know either. She gave me some answer, but it was obvious she didn't know. But to answer questions like that, where did this come from? Where did this belief come from? Where did this practice come from? And, uh, that's kind of really after I got out of college initially after I graduated the first time, I decided to follow a reading program on um, Western civilization. Why did Western civilization become so dominant and important? And kind of a corollary of that is uh, the origins of religions and Christianity in particular, where did that come from? How did that evolve? And that was kind of a corollary to finding out about Western civilization. So that was kind of where this all developed. In your studies, um, why um, why embrace the Old Testament? If the Mithraic religion was being infused with the New Testament, can you figure? Oh, good question. Good question. Good question. Okay. Uh, a couple reasons. One is, if the claim is Jesus died for our sin, why did Jesus die? Okay. Well, the answer was for our sin. What sin? <laughs> I mean, what sin? Well, they went back to the Old Testament about the story of Adam and Eve, which I talked about earlier. But also, this new religion, this new religion of Christianity had to sell itself to the public on street corners all over the Greek and Roman world. Now, one of the selling points in these religions, the 
older your religious documents are, the more authentic your religion is. Okay? So, if this new religion, Christianity, could tie itself to some old religious works, old books, the more authentic it was in selling it to the populations. Okay? And so, it was very beneficial for two reasons. One, we're tied to an old religion, old religious books here. We go back to the this Jewish book, the Old Testament, okay? That was one big selling point. And the other reason was to answer the question, Jesus died for what sin? <laughs> okay, what sin? Well, like, oh, here's a sin. Adam ate from the tree of knowledge, okay? And so... Uh, it's kind of curious Adam ate from the tree of knowledge. Like I said, he didn't eat from the tree of ignorance. He was punished for eating the tree of knowledge. And there's always been, with all religions, okay, uh, they don't like knowledge, okay? They want the religions to be based on faith, not knowledge, as opposed to science is not based on faith. It's based on knowledge, Okay, so there's always going to be a conflict between religious beliefs and knowledge, you know, science based on knowledge. There's always going to be a conflict there. And, uh, and um, well, the reason I bring it up is because um, one of the the difficult things to establish is how popular or how well known was um, the Jewish canon up to that point. We know that. There was the 70 rabbis that translated it to Greek in Alexandria, the Septuagint. So, yeah. but was it just um, a compendium that was available to philosophers and scholars, or was did they have copies that would pass around to people? Because, you know, they say that in the Middle Ages, people were ignorant or uh, unlearned, and that you would need art and and liturgy and other types of almost like doing a play for them to get them to connect with the, the message. Um, how can you point to Isaiah if no one's ever read Isaiah? So were, were, were they trying to, was Paul, when he was talking to the different people, was he trying to uh, convince the, the head guy who was a scholar and knowledgeable of different religions and, and texts, and then he could disseminate that information to the public? Well, you have to remember, the church wanted to control all centers of education. So if you had any education, you were a church member, okay? And whatever beliefs the church wanted to disseminate or claims they wanted to make had to come from Catholic priests. There were a few exceptions to this. One very interesting exception is... uh, uh, King King Alfred the Great in England, he was literate. He didn't get his literacy from the church. He could read and write. And a very interesting story. I could talk for a while on that. I won't do it. But for the most part, uh, education was all controlled by the church. Like I said, it was a, a policy that was followed for hundreds of years to get this control. And once you control all education, 
okay? They control all of it for the most part. They could say whatever they wanted. Who's going to challenge them? And it wasn't until literacy and the printing press started coming about in Europe that uh, you had people started questioning these things. It wasn't until, uh, you know, Martin Luther and other people, uh, and the Bible was translated into English and German and other languages that you started, other people started reading this stuff. Before that, the church had a total monopoly on education. In fact, when universities in the Middle Ages, when universities started in, particularly in Northern Europe and Paris and Germany and places like that, if you went to the university, you were a member of the church. Your head was shaved. You were a monk. Okay? And uh, you functioned at the university under religious law, not civil law, religious law. And there were plenty of episodes I'm thinking of the University of Paris, where college-age students would have drunken riots in town, and the civil authorities could do nothing about it because they were under religious law, <laughs> not civil law. They would be complaints to the local bishop about this. And uh, but if you went to, if you wanted to study study anything in a university. As a student, you were a official member of the clergy. So, so what happened to Jesus after he survived the crucifixion? Uh, is it like the movie The Last um, Temptation of Christ, where he got married and had kids, and then he died during the the revolt? Or I don't know about any of that stuff. Uh, that's even more circumspect than anything else. He would. We know he the Roman guard had stuck his spear in his side and, you know, wounded him gravely, in all probability, uh, he died of disease or something uh, shortly afterwards. And uh, these other stories about him traveling to India and stuff like that, you know, there's not even circumstantial evidence to that. And so uh, I kind of discount all that stuff. He probably died a year or two later, maybe even less. But the recordings of this, his survival, would have been, if they would have been found, like the Q document we know existed, if the church had found that, they would have destroyed it, burned it, gotten rid of it, because it contradicted their official belief. And so... uh, Anyhow. Anything else from other mystery religions that you see connected to Christianity? Uh, go ahead. Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. Uh, in the uh, civil, I mentioned that my Christian religion was just for men, and but there was like the woman's auxiliary, okay, and that was the civil religion in the Atis religion were also there. And some of their beliefs went into Christianity, like Palm Sunday comes from them. Uh, Their belief was that uh, Atis went into the city before he died. The palm leaves were spread down as he 
travel with a donkey or something over them and stuff. But there, yeah, there are other pieces of this uh, mystery religions that entered into Christianity. And that was fairly much common today when uh, Christianity was trying to take over uh, the religious belief of Mexican Indians. Frequently, their myths are encompassed into uh, Christian belief, even today in Mexico. And uh, as as uh, Christianity spread into uh, Europe, the Celtic worship of the goddess Easter was encompassed into uh, Christianity. I mean, Easter is really a uh, Celtic goddess that uh, where hares and eggs are a celebration of uh, spring and rebirth. And so uh, that was one of the main reasons for Christianity spreading and taking over some of these other pagan beliefs. They would encompass them into the Christian religion, and some of them stuck, <laughs> uh, like Easter. Uh, the ones in Mexico or South America uh, did not take over the whole Catholic uh, religious belief then, but uh, they're local. In their local Christian beliefs, they've taken over. And this is one of the uh, ways of converting pagans into Christianity, particularly in the Catholic Church, of course. Because um, there's two books that I have in my possession. I have The Jesus Mysteries and Pagan Christ. Jesus Mysteries was by Timothy Freck and Peter Gandhi. And they say that Christianity comes from uh, the cult of Dionysius. Um, and then Pagan Christ claims that it comes from um, Persian and Babylonian influence because they believe that the, the king had to be sacrificed for the people or something like that, and that um, all these ideas were um, roaming around in the time of, of Jesus and they were incorporated into that narrative. Um, do you? Because my real question is, every scholar or every researcher finds their version of what happened or their own what I would call personal Jesus and it's either a revolutionary a charismatic leader um, apocalypse uh, apocalypticist uh, or some pagan style figure that was incorporated so um, are can all these things be true or is there a way to discern which one uh, makes more sense or is more historical well, I think it was a German scholar that said every generation comes up with its own historical Jesus. <laughs> uh, all, most of what you said, uh, I would practically concur with. There are various ways of looking at this, and you can magnify different parts. The thing about Dionysus is some of these mystery religions are very similar, but the similarity between Mithraic mysteries and early Christianity is just overwhelming. And, uh, but uh, the thing about uh, connection to Eastern religions like 
Zoroasterism and stuff. A- absolutely correct. And this idea that the king dies, this goes back to a much earlier uh, religious practice and beliefs. That, uh, who was the guy that uh, wrote all those books on that subject? Uh, let me go in. Let me find uh, the author. Uh, Campbell, Joseph Campbell. <laughs> oh, he's great on this. Uh, he wrote lots of books on early religious beliefs, much earlier than what we're talking about. And uh, it was very common for there to be two leaders, two kings, or a king and a religious leader. And this was very common. And one of one religious practice was messengers to the gods. If you wanted to tell gods your god something, you sent a messenger. You sacrificed a guy that would go and spread the message, tell the message to God. You killed him. And the practice was uh, this was a voluntary thing, usually uh, always a voluntary thing. The Celtics practiced this. Uh, you would get for a year, you could do anything you want in town, in the village or town, wherever it was. You could go in to have anyone's wife. You could eat any food. You could buy any, you could do anything you wanted. At the end of the time, you would be killed and your soul would go up to heaven and speak to God. Okay, it's a common religious belief all around the world. The uh, Aztecs practiced this. They had a ball game, uh, something similar to soccer, where they would kick a ball around a soccer field and it had to go through a loop, and there would be two teams of five men each. The captain of the winning team, okay, the winning team, would be sacrificed to God <laughs> and to carry a message to God. The Celtics did the same thing. Uh, this was practiced in India, too, until uh, the British put a stop to it when they started taking over India. And uh, the Spartans had two kings. Okay, This is based on... Uh, an older practice of having a king, another superior leader like the king, who was also the religious leader, who was frequently sacrificed, by the way. But uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph Campbell talks about all this extensively and uh, does a fabulous job of it. Too. And anyhow, that's where a lot of a lot of what you're saying. I don't have a big problem with, okay? Uh, And it goes back to this uh, German scholar saying, gosh, every generation has their own religious Jesus (laughs) or own own historical Jesus, I should say. And, uh, but the main thing I'm trying to push, I like to push, is education. If people read, you know, Find out where these beliefs come from. They're not secret. 
there are books published on this subject, literally, and uh, different viewpoints. Dig into it. Make up your own mind. And uh, there's a ton of them out there. And most Christians know nothing, very little about their own religion. They don't realize every time you go in a church and have the Eucharist, you're committing cannibalism. That's eating flesh and blood. That's cannibalism. Now, of course, uh, the Catholic Church actually says this is the actual body of Christ, actual blood, you know, officially. The Pope said that. So they're actually committing cannibalism. The Protestants say, well, this is symbolic. We're just doing symbolic. And they admit it's not actually flesh and blood. But they're practicing uh, pretend cannibalism official. In their church, in a religion, you're practicing pretend cannibalism? That's terrible. You shouldn't be doing that. But anyhow. Last question. Um, You mentioned in our email exchange that there was up to 10 different messiahs. Uh, You mentioned that Joseph Campbell had like a a kingly leader and then a priestly one. What what are the other types of messiahs that, that were common around that time? Oh, I used to have a book on the subject. had about 10 of them. It was a horrible read, though. It was terrible. But it named quite a few of them. I don't remember. I can't give you a lot of detail. Oh, I did. There is one. Oh, and I can't give you the name. I'd have to look it up. But, yes, there were other religious leaders that... uh, just like Jesus, in the Roman Empire, okay, in the Roman Empire, the Romans actually crucified for revolting against the authority of Rome. Jesus wasn't the first one. There were others. Historical. They're historical. And even though there's nothing historical reference to the crucifixion of Jesus, there are to these other religious leaders, fanatics, religious fanatics that the Romans crucified. And uh, it would take me a... How do you you, you define fanatic? Oh, a guy that has religious beliefs that are uh, different from what is considered normal for the time. And uh, it would be age-specific, you know, uh, what would be fanatic, 2,000 years ago might not be today. What would be today considered fanatic, fanatical uh, 100 years from now wouldn't be, you know. It would be something that, that the norm, that the people of the religion wouldn't consider normal of that date. Well, we want to thank you for your time. Uh, we appreciate you doing this uh, two-parter or two-hour audio documentary with us. Um, It's always good to hear different perspectives and to uh, expand our horizons. So, again, thank you for your time. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic.